Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm Benjamin Red, joined by Nizar Hassan. Happy New Year, Nizar. Yeah, we had the Islamic New Year this week, um, which is celebrated by most Muslims, but not all of them. Right. If you're Shiite, it's not necessarily a happy New Year, right? Yeah, it's not. It happened because it happened 10 days before the tragic killing of Hussein in the Battle of Karbala in modern-day Iraq, which is one of the most important events for Shiite Muslims. And it's commemorated by 10 days of wearing black and going to the Husseiniyas and discussing the death of Hussein and the injustice around it and the heroism of the of this man. So he means a lot for Shiite Muslims and his death happened 10 days after. So for these 10 days, no one is celebrating anything. Uh, also, this week we had the first rains of the season. Yeah, uh, <laughs> weird stuff. Yeah, really yeah, hot and like rain. crazy things, especially like up north, right? Up, up in Danie and Nakar and ba- uh, Baalbek, and and this they actually caused a bunch of uh, damage. Uh, there were no injuries or deaths reported uh, that I've seen, at least. Semi Fatfat, who is the new MP uh, for Danie, said that Danie just wasn't prepared, and and they call uh, he called the rains unprecedented. Right? This this happens you know, quite a bit, it seems. And somebody always gets the blame, like what what happened this time around, the energy and water ministry came out and said, hey, this isn't our fault. It's, it's not our job basically to like go around and clear out like storm drains and stuff like that. It's the uh, interior ministry's job and local municipalities. Uh, right. But I don't know really where to land on this because I seem to remember back a few years ago, if you remember back in 2013, we had like really massive floods here in Beirut. And it, like it flooded the uh, that tunnel beneath the airport that basically connects the south to Beirut. And the person who got the blame back then was the public works and transportation minister, uh, Ghazi Aridi. And mm. he ended up resigning from the cabinet, resigning, by the way, from a caretaker cabinet. So the the cabinet was already resigned and he resigned again from that. Uh, it was right before the Tamem Salem government came in. But yeah, he was the one. So I'm, I'm not sure who's actually responsible for this. I don't know if it's the Interior Ministry, if the Water Ministry, the Public Works Ministry. Who knows? Yeah, I think um, for the infrastructure related to ministry jurisdiction, it depends on the road that you're talking about. So, for example, if it's a main road, it's the responsibility of the Public Works Ministry. It's for like uh, partial or internal roads inside towns and cities then it's the responsibility of the municipality to make sure that they are um, well-maintained, etc. So I think that differentiates the two cases, maybe. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Also this week, we had uh, a viral video that came out from these. Uh, there, there were also some some rains in the Mount Lebanon area and the Khadir River, which dries up during the summertime, right? It, yeah. it came to life again, but it was a river of trash. Totally. And, yes. and so we had this viral video going around that was just like literally just like a river of trash in like just south of Beirut. It was really painful watching that. Yeah. And speaking of our natural environment, it, it turns out that, you know, Horse Beirut, the, the big park in the middle of Beirut, mm-hmm. Beirut's not well known for having a lot of parks. It's one of the big complaints of a lot of people here. But there is a gigantic park in the middle of Beirut called Horse Beirut. It, it's like gated off uh, as everything. But this week it came out, or I think last week maybe it came out, that part of it was being dug up for a new building for general security. Now, this isn't the main part of the park. It's on the same plot of land, but it's like across the street from the main part of the park. But still, there were like pine trees and stuff on this plot of land. And somebody was excavating it, and it turned out it was general security. They were going to build a new general security building there. Mm-hmm. Of course, 
a lot of people got angry about this. You know, a big deal happened uh, in the press and people saying, hey, don't do this. Stop this. And General Security actually did. They came out and said, we're not going to do this. We're going to look for another site. Yeah, what what seems to be ha- to have happened is that General Security did not really know the kind of a plot they're building on and it was the responsibility of the governor of Beirut as the actual official head of the municipality to inform them that this is part of Harsh Beirut and we should not build on that like to actually ban them from building on that but Which I think he says he says that he uh, issued a, an order to stop the works but they didn't stop when when the governor said to stop he always makes these statements that make him seem very weak but he has the biggest like authority in Beirut which is a bit uh, strange yeah it's weird it, like we're, we're not sure what the details are, uh, the full details of the situation are but, but at the end of the day Abbas Ibrahim the head of general security came out and said okay so we're we, we may have like dug up all these trees and, and excavated the site but we're gonna stop so I, I don't know what's gonna happen now I don't know if it's just gonna be a big hole in the ground or if that they're gonna replant trees or what but Apparently, general security is going to look for a new site. Yeah, we hope so. And also, um, just to give some a little bit of background, this is after many different uh, controversies related to taking uh, land from Harsh Beirut and building stuff in it. So there was the parking of Harsh Beirut, which is officially also part of the park that was um, used last year for the construction, and last year and the year before, for the construction of a hospital. And activists were calling for stopping the project for for many months, and then they just went on even though it's like it should be illegal to build there. And also the previous municipality of Beirut had a plan to move the whole stadium of Malab al-Baladi, the whole football stadium from Tariq Jdidi to the park. Mm. So there's always this outrage against anything that takes any inch from the park because it's already just a little portion of what it used to be a long time ago. Right. I, I, I like to refer to it as... Uh, like an uncoordinated assault on the green spaces of the city. And it's like there, there isn't some master mm-hmm. plan. There isn't some evil guy sitting there saying like, how do I destroy green spaces in Beirut? But just naturally it ends up happening. They ended up getting sort of eroded at the edges. Roads, you know, might cut through them, that sort of a thing. And at yeah. the end of the day, we end up with fewer green spaces in the city. Totally. Uh, just a quick note, uh, not this, not yesterday, Sunday, but Sunday a week ago, uh, 778 Assyrian refugees returned in a one of these general security organized returns to Syria. Um, that brings the number up to something like 3,000 returns that have happened through general security, which is like, it may sound like a lot, but it's really not because we have like a million Syrian refugees, something on that order here in Lebanon still. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're thinking that the the general security returns, like they keep happening, but if they keep happening in these numbers, it's going to take a really, really long time for uh, refugees to return. And so if refugees do return, I, I figure it'll be through other channels. Yeah, it seems so. Anyway, we'll have an episode about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're scheduled Monday. Today, uh, another uh, group is going to go back, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, last week, quickly on that, Lebanon appointed members of a joint uh, Lebanese-Russian returns committee. Uh, so we'll see what happens. With that. This is something that Russia had wanted us to do, uh, and and uh, the government's gone ahead and done it now. Uh all right, so on to the politics. This past week, we saw some crazy stuff happen between the Free Patriotic Movement of uh, Michel Aoun, uh, Gibraltar Basile, and uh, the Progressive Socialist Party of Walid Jumblat. Yeah. Right. It, it wasn't it wasn't the the big guys involved in this, but it was like their ministers. So Marwan Hamede uh, of the PSP dismissed Hilda Khouri, who is seen as close to the FPM. She was like the head of official exams at the education ministry. Mm-hmm. Hamede is the education minister. 
He decided to dismiss her from her responsibilities. Obviously, this is not a firing, right? Like, she's still in the civil service at her same grade and everything, but she's no longer responsible for the the official exams. And then, in retaliation, Tarek Khatib, the environment minister, decided to sack uh, Nizar Hani from his position as the boss of the Shouf Biosphere Reserve. Again, not actually firing, but actually taking away this portfolio. And it was really interesting because Khatib, uh, uh, who is uh, of the FPM, actually said this is explicitly a political move. Yeah. He didn't he didn't give any reasons like he, he, he came out and said specifically like this is like political. This is re- retaliation. Yeah. It's not like the guy was doing a bad job managing the biosphere reserve. Exactly. He didn't say anything bad about him. I think he actually said something about him being competent and everything. Yeah, apparently sure this that... guy is super popular inside the environment. Oh, he is. Trust me, because it's he, this Shuf biosphere reserve is like right next to my village. Mm. And everyone there speaks of him very well. People with Jumblat against him. It doesn't matter. He's a professional person who has taken like a lot of community initiatives. He has kind of revamped the institution of the Sheaf Biosphere Reserve. And we're talking about a huge uh, reserve here, the biggest cedars reserve in Lebanon, which is all over Shuf, but it has many entrances. And one of them is from Baruch. Anyway, so this is a very, very important natural institution. And this guy was doing a good job. For once, everyone was happy with who's managing it and all the initiatives it's taking. And now he's gone. Haram, yeah. And the decision by Tariq Khatib, like, particularly mentioned that Nizar Hani will have nothing to do anymore with the Shuf Biosphere Reserve. So it wasn't only a decision to move him. It was kind of a decision to isolate him from the job completely. Yeah. And we, we also had somebody at EDL who was removed. So it, this all points to just why we can't have a good bureaucracy here in Lebanon. It, uh, it's, it's often compared to, you know, like a, a, a pie, you know. Uh, and so, like, all of the politicians sort of carve up the, the pie and they each get a piece. That is way too simplistic of a way to think about the Lebanese bureaucracy and the Lebanese state. It's really, mm-hmm. it's, it's more like there's a whole bunch of pies, right? <laughs> and, and so, like, during the cabinet formation process, like, yeah, you may get, you know, a couple of pies yourself, but you don't own all of the slices of those pies. Definitely. And if you're if you're a Samir Jaja or Walid Jumblat or Nabi Birri or somebody, like you own a couple of those pies, but you also have claims on slices of other people's pies. And if somebody decides to eat your slice of their pie, then you might retaliate by taking their slice because you own this pie, right? Like you have this ministry or whatever. And so you can never, in, in, the, in the bureaucracy, you can never really fire anybody who is incompetent because then their zaim whoever they work for might retaliate against you in some other state institution and get rid of some one of your guys totally totally this is how it happens in all institutions i think like when you take a ministry in lebanon it means three things basically where you send the money in the project of the ministry who you give the contracts to and you who you appoint or fire from the ministry ranks like these are the three important things for the politicians. This is the basis of clientelism in the in the executive authority. So whenever you want to do any of these things, there are people who are who will be pushing back or fighting you from the same ministry or from outside, from other ministries. Yeah, and it, w- while these guys were not fired, we mentioned they were dismissed. Totally. Yeah. We we did have somebody very important come out this week and call for fire like mass firings of state employees <laughs> the the head of like the the supreme disciplinary board or, yeah. or whatever you want to call it uh, in english 
this judge, um, Marwan Abud. Yeah, he he came out uh, in an interview with Al Manar, and he said half of Lebanese civil servants should just be fired because they're corrupt, they're incompetent, whatever. Like, just fire fifty thousand of the hundred thousand or so of them. <laughs> it was like big deal for some, you know, somebody to say this. And he complained that like the Central Inspection Bureau isn't really doing their jobs, that like they need to complain more to me so that I can, you know, take action and remove these employees. And and he also said that like laws need to be updated. You know, you need uh, apparently like electronic evidence is not considered official. So you, like, of course, everything happens over like WhatsApp or email or something these days. And so if, if you don't have this as potential evidence in a corruption proceeding, mm-hmm. well, you don't have anything, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there were some, some other things that he said. I just find it insane that somebody of this position has lashed out uh, in, in such striking terms. Yeah, I found it weird as well. Like, doesn't it overlap with his jurisdiction or something? Couldn't he take any form of actual action? Well, that was the thing. Like, he was complaining that central inspection needs to... Apparently, he can only act if they bring the complaint against the employee. So yeah, it's related, I think, to the jurisdiction of oversight agencies. It's a huge yeah. topic of who can actually monitor how the things are happening in the administration and to what extent. Um, maybe we'll look into that in further details later. And we, we also had a, a little bit more political uh, person la- lashing out. Uh, Wa'al Abu Faour lashed out personally at Michel Aoun. Yeah, that's an escalation. Which is fucking insane. I mean, he said some really crazy things. And, and like, personally, directed against the president. Not not as in, like, a high-ranking official. He didn't couch it in any terms, like, allude, alluding to it. No, he just came out and said, like, uh, you know, Aoun is, uh, his repeated talk of reform has become a joke <laughs> to all Lebanese. He said that uh, Aoun was, like, living a historical revenge against the Ta'if agreement um, in this desperate attempt to bury it. He said that Aoun was raising the level of sectarianism and has turned Lebanon back years. Wow. Huge, huge escalation of it in is. rhetoric. It is. And, and we should note that uh, Abu Fawr is PSP. He's, he's a June Block guy. And he's senior PSP. He's yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of the political, uh, my favorite topic, cabinet formation. We, we've had now 116 days since Hariri was designated, 118 days without a government. Aoun was expected to send a letter to Parliament, uh, like present his plan, right? After the 1st of September, he was going to come out with this plan, uh, but he still hasn't. And we don't really know why. We're just sort of waiting on something to happen. Nothing's really happened, uh, except like this week, we saw sort of the, the finance people, the economic people coming out and saying, hey, 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 the situation is really bad. We need to get our act together. Uh, we had uh, Red Sleme, the, uh, the governor of the central bank, come out and say, we need a new cabinet. We need to pass a budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ali Hassan Khalil has been saying this, uh, and he reiterated again this week. And a lot of this has to do with, specifically with the 2019 budget, which the finance ministry has prepared it. It is sitting at the office of the Council of Ministers, right? But mm-hmm. you need a Council of Ministers. You need a cabinet to act on it. That's the next step. Uh, yeah. And without that, th- then uh, we have a whole lot of problems because with the Paris 4 uh, conference, the CEDRA conference, it, it requires us to make certain reforms. And one of those reforms is, uh, according to a report from Franza Bank, for Lebanon to bring down its fiscal deficit to, G- to GDP ratio by 5% over five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are other reforms. So this, this requires a budget. It requires, you know, real fiscal discipline uh, starting to be reintroduced in Lebanon. But you need a cabinet to do this. 
right? Yeah. And and so all of these people uh, are coming out for, uh, you know, in favor of this. Like, okay, it's time. You need to sit down and hammer out a deal and and form a government. Yeah, and it's uh, it's important to note here, we can have a, a podcast on the Lebanese economic model and all that later, but it's important to note that Lebanon, Lebanon's economy really depends on the confidence in the political system to an extent that is probably more than other countries. Uh, first of all, because of how big the financial uh, sector is compared to the other sectors, and also because of the base, because the basis of the economy itself is just completely dependent on people moving money into Lebanon. That's basically yeah. the main source of uh, capital accumulation in Lebanon. So if the confidence drops, people don't move their money in, we're in trouble. And we are in trouble. We are in big, big trouble now economically in terms of foreign reserves and how much we can handle them for the future, the deficit from uh, between the money going out of the country and the money going in. But we can talk about that later. But it's really, really dependent on the politics. Right. And, and I think um, this whole budget issue as well may be one of the reasons why parliament seems to be working so fast right now. Um, so right now, parliament, as we mentioned before on the podcast, they're, they're in an extraordinary session, right? Mm-hmm. And But all that's happening so far is, is a whole bunch of like frenetic committee work, right? So they're getting ready a whole bunch of bills and they're, they've got a deadline for this as well. Constitutionally, it's the 16th of October, their new session, their fall session begins and they can do no work before passing a state budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if they want to get all of these, if they want to abide by the constitution and get these laws uh, passed, then they, uh, they need to get it all done within basically the next month or so. And, and so we, we're seeing like a lot of movement on like a health bill, something like 1.8 million Lebanese lack health insurance. Yeah. So they're trying to reform that. The, the committees are also looking at uh, the sovereign wealth fund uh, for you know potential oil and gas revenues. There's a judicial mediation law that was just approved last week by the joint committees uh, because the Lebanese court system is notoriously slow. And a media law update, which is important for you know covering things like people being detained for what they post on Facebook. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of uh, budget-related issues, uh, we had a, we had news about a new tax in Lebanon last week, and the news was that a new tax was imposed. But rather, the issue was that the government stopped postponing the impl- implementation of this tax, which had been happening since year 2000, when it was enacted. It was enacted in the Hus government, and then Hariri took over after the elections, and he paused, he postponed, started postponing the implementation. And this tax um, uh, is basically on liberal professionals and small businesses and big businesses. It's not big amounts, but it doesn't differentiate the type of, according to the type of income or profit. So it's a regressive tax. Anyway, there was some uh, outrage about it among middle-class activists. And then the bourgeois lobby of Lebanon, Mohamed Sher, Nicolas Shamas, the bankers and the t- uh, merchants, they went to uh, see Ali Hassan Khalil, the finance minister, and they convinced him to postpone, to talk to Hariri about some way to postpone it without having to maybe pass another law. I don't know how they're going to do it. But they said they said they're going to postpone it because it was due this month and nobody knew about it. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> also this week, though, the big story, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon started its closing arguments uh, on Tuesday. Hariri actually went to the Netherlands to attend uh, the first session. Hariri said like he, he supports the work of the SDL. It, obviously, he's interested in you know, seeing justice done for uh, the murder of his father. But he also said he wouldn't let it get in the way of his governing, right? Because he is the prime minister of, prime minister designate of the country, of everybody, right? Yeah. 
So anyway, on Tuesday, it was the, the prosecution was up first. They took until Friday. They finished up Friday. Then uh, the legal representative of the victims spoke. And then on Monday, we're going to have the defense. And it's scheduled right now. Uh, they're scheduled to last until Friday. But that could end up going longer if they take longer. Um, don't don't expect like any sort of verdict immediately from this. We're expecting a verdict in several months. So probably like early 2019 time frame. But I, I think this is a really important topic just because there's there's a lot of history uh, b- behind the STL and, and what it's there for. And I, I think we today we want to do sort of a deep dive into that and yeah. explain like what the hell is this, right? Totally, because I think a lot of people are are a bit confused when they hear the news about STL, you know, what's happening, such a long procedure. It's right, and it's like a court procedure. It seems like really dull most of the time, but it, it it's not. Yeah, it's really important at least. Let's start by giving some like background information. Maybe not everyone knows exactly what happened. So Rafiq Hadir was assassinated on uh, February 14, 2005 in a huge uh, blast in Solidaire in central Beirut. So it's basically near the Phoenicia Hotel, for those who know it. It was a huge blast. Uh, Hariri was killed. His convoy, a lot of people from his convoy were killed. So the total was 21 people and Hariri. And also then former fi- finance minister Basil Flehan was in Hariri's same car, I think. And he was uh, killed along with the other people. Right. Like this was a massive blast. It, it shook the city. Literally. Totally. totally. I think it was the biggest event I have witnessed in my lifetime. And um, the repercussions, like just the mood in the country was absolutely uh, fascinating how how much of a catastrophe it was uh, to be living in that moment. I remember I was in a classroom and then the blast happened and we heard it. It was really far from, from the place of the explosion, but we heard it very clearly. We went out and we saw like this kind of mushroom-like cloud um, in the sky and uh, a lot of people's windows were broken even in a huge periphery uh, around the, the explosion site. So it was really, really big. Yeah, it shook the city literally. And and it also like, I, I don't think it's like too trite to say like it, it shook the, you know, the Lebanese political system fundamentally as well, right? Completely. And the thing that was most significant about this crime is that it happened in a moment of very high political tensions between Rafiq Hariri himself and the Syrian regime, which was still then governing Lebanon through the patronage system that existed. So we had still 15,000 Syrian troops in Lebanon. Um, the military intelligence was almost completely controlled by the Syrians. The political decisions, all the major political decisions, everything was basically under the patronage of the Syrians. So uh, Rafiq Hariri and the Syrians had some tensions just before the, the assassination happened, which is what gave it its political significance. So if we look at the timeline of those events, in August 2004, 26 August, Rafiq Hariri met with uh, President Bashar Assad because Hariri had been against the extension of the president, Emil Lahoud's term. This required a constitutional amendment. Hariri was against it. Bashar Assad was like, you have to do it. There was a big political turmoil around it. Jumblat was against it and many other people as well. And at that time as well, Hariri was working on a big step internationally, which is UN Security Council Resolution 1559 which mainly said that all, all foreign forces should be withdrawn from Lebanon. And it's, an, it's basically just a reference to the Syrians. There's, there was no other foreign force in Lebanon. So one week after Hariri met with Bashar al-Assad, after he had stated that he would not extend, he would not vote for extending Lahoud's term, he actually approved the extension of the Lahoud's term. His bloc in parliament 
approved it. So it was clear that Hariri was succumbing to the threat or at least high pressure from Bashar Assad. And the Lebanese parliament ap- adopted the, the extension and it referred it to the government on the same day. And then four days, this is very interesting, four days after that happened, four ministers in the cabinet resigned because of this issue. And these were uh, Marwan Ahmedi and Ghazi Aridi from the PSP people and two other uh, ministers, including Fariz Bouz and Abdullah Farhat. So these four ministers resigned because of this issue. And then three weeks later, there was an assassination attempt against Marwan Ahmadi, kind of the big head in this resignation move in the cabinet. And three days later, Harir resigned as prime minister. So Bashar Assad delivered a speech like against the, his critics in Lebanon uh, and the United Nations. Um, the UN said that maybe the, with the current situation, it's impossible to implement 1559 because of how much there is Syrian influence over Lebanon. And President Lahoud kind of accepted Hariri's resignation and appointed Omar Karami instead of him. This is how 2004 ended, with this much political tensions. Right, because so, the, the story of the STL is really one of going back to this 2005 event and examining like all of this, the, the political climate of the time and then trying to figure out, you know, well, how was it that this big bombing happened? What you know, who did it? Who who had a motive to do it? And and trying to assign blame. Yeah, exactly. And the whole mood because of these tensions that I just described, the whole mood in Lebanon among people outside of the Hezbollah Amal movement camp was that it was the Syrians who killed him. Everyone said it. Michel Aoun, current president, when he was in France, he was giving an interview. He said, "I'm 100% sure that the Syrians." killed Rafiq Hariri. So everyone was really confident making that claim because it made sense politically. And politically there was there was a huge backlash, right? The the yeah. big the the most immediate thing that came from the Hariri assassination was what happened March 14th, right? Exactly. So on March 14th there was huge a huge protest in downtown Beirut in Martyr Square. I think it was one of the biggest protests uh, in Lebanon's history. Really everyone was there like just Everyone went, except for Hezbollah and, and Amal supporters, of course. Everyone else almost was in the streets demanding that the Syrians withdraw um, like in line with 1559 and also just because they're sick of the Syrian uh, patronage over Lebanon. And there was a demand as well among the protesters and the figures there that the security officials who are governing, governing Lebanon under the Syrian patronage are arrested because they might be linked to the um, assassination of Hariri. Which is insane. It is. I like, mean, yeah. like right now, I can't imagine criticizing a lot of security agencies in the country. Uh, you just That's just something that you don't do. And, and back then, these security agencies, like under the Syrian you know, domination, they were even more powerful. And so to have a situation where people are like openly calling for the imprisonment uh, or, or for the arrest of the heads of security agencies is mind blowing. Yeah, definitely. And the more mind blowing thing is that they were actually arrested shortly after. So what happened is that we had after the big protests, huge political turmoil, a lot of pressure internationally and locally on the Syrians to withdraw. The Syrians withdrew their troops. We had an election, which was the first uh, outside of the Syrian patronage for, uh, you know, since forever. And uh, these elections led to the March 14 political forces to win and to form a government. And after this government was formed, the four security officials 
head of the general security, Jamil Sayed, who is now a member of parliament. The former Internal Security Forces Director General Al Hajj, the former military intelligence chief Ramon Azar, and the commander of the presidential guards, Mustafa Hamdan. So the arrest of the former generals um, was not only a local issue. There was a Security Council resolution in April 2005 that created the UN International Independent Investigation Commission uh, to look into Hariri's assassination. This commission um, was like was interviewing, interrogating people, um, a lot of testimonies and sources. And at that time, there were two people who are were self-proclaimed Syrian military intelligence officers who are now known as the fault witnesses who told the the commission that it was the Syrian regime that orchestrated and implemented the attack uh, with the knowledge of um, the security these security officials and the UNIIC report in 2005 said that it's almost impossible that um, the assassination happened without the knowledge of these four generals because they were appointed by the Syrian regime and uh, they knew almost everything that was happening, etc. So the the report was that in October 2005 that it ended very clearly that these generals had something to do with the assassination. So they were arrested and kept in jail without any charges for four years. That's nuts. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it was really big and and I don't see any other like any similar case in Lebanon's recent history that had this much of like, so a decision is made and then it took them four years to have the courage to, to revoke it. Um, and it was basically because when this decision was made, it was seen as the pro-March 14 political forces consolidating their power over Lebanon, kicking out the Syrians and also cracking down on their influence in the country. So it was like the nail in the coffin of the Syrians arresting these four generals. And reversing this decision would have kind of had political implications, you know, uh, hinting that uh, maybe Syria is having influence again on the judiciary system because people actually believed that these four people, I for one believed completely that these four people had something to do with it because they were like the official security people. So, and Right, and, were, and that's that's sort of like one of the things that was said in like the, the UN IIIC report, uh, like the, the first one for us is sort of like, oh, well, we're not really sure yet who, who did it, but clearly like the Syrians like knew, and the people who were close to the Syrians, like the the security agents, they they must have had some role, just because of how pervasive the Syrian presence was in Lebanon, and and especially in the security agencies in Lebanon. Exactly, exactly. And uh, there was an an exchange between, um, which was revealed by WikiLeaks later, between the U.S. embassy in Lebanon and commissioner investigating Hariri's assassination. And it, it indicated, it revealed very clearly that they knew they had no evidence against these four generals. They knew that they had to release them lawfully, like if they want to abide by laws. But uh, it was very politically sensitive. So they were kind of postponing it as much as possible to make sure that it was the UN who makes the decision to free the, the, the arrested generals rather than the Lebanese judiciary system. This way it would look more impartial and people wouldn't say it's the Syrians' influence because the Syria, because the Syrian regime cannot possibly influence um, a UN investigation that is quite aggressive against the Syrian regime himself. Yeah, and and backing up just a step, it, I, I think it's it's important to know just like how political this entire process has been from the beginning, right? And uh, so like we have like resignations in two thousand six, basically over this issue, right? 
Yeah, so it was after the, it was clear that uh, the UN investigation had pointed fingers at the Syrian regime. So the pro-Syrian regime forces, Amal and Hezbollah, uh, resigned from cabinet uh, saying um, Lebanon should not at all deal with this um, UN investigation thing. It's back in 2006, right? Yeah. So it was before STL. So actually going on with the UN investigation was a political choice itself because there were people in Lebanon who were against it based on the the political accusation against the Syrian regime. But Lebanon um, decided to um, move on. Much 14 forces were more powerful politically. They decided Lebanon decided to move on with the investigation and also to request a special tribunal for Lebanon, an international court that is responsible for investigating and judging, making the judgment on this case, which took three years to, to happen. So it wasn't, it wasn't until 2009 that we actually had the STL established officially. Right. The the Security Council resolution that was based on was passed in something like 2007, but then it took a couple of years to actually get it up and running in, in the yep. Netherlands, close to The Hague. Exactly. And the concept of the STL was that it's an international court, so it's good to avoid like bias or political interference to a certain extent. It applies Lebanese law. It doesn't apply international law. It applies only Lebanese law, but it cannot impose the death penalty. And it has a combination of international and Lebanese judges working in it. It's really a unique institution, it, it, like the only one of its kind. That's what I've heard as well, yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it's also unique because it's the only time that the international community has created a special court for like an assassination, right? It's usually, you know, a, a mass atrocity or something yeah. like that. I mean, this was certainly an atrocity, but it wasn't, you know, a mass atrocity, right? 22 people died. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, a genocide or anything like that. So this court is very special in that the international community took an interest in, in I guess, a smaller scale uh, of crime, right? Yeah, and uh, to confirm what you're saying, like the current prosecutor, the head of the prosecution office in the STL, had been working in Rwanda and in Yugoslavia and in places where there were these um, mass atrocities happened and mass like violations of human rights, etc. So the verdict is usually, or the jurisdiction is usually more in that side of um, political crimes. Yeah, so ha- having said that, the court is there to basically figure out, okay, who done it, right? It's building on the UNICEF's like investigations and everything, and then they did their own investigations, and they ended up indicting five people total in this crime, right? Yeah, so that's in Hariri's case, and the the tribunal is also investigating three other uh, political assassinations, that or assassination attempts actually. Two attempts, one against Marwan Ahmadi, which we mentioned, and one against Lies al-Mur, which happened after Hariri's assassination, and that of late uh, Communist Party chief George Hawi, which happened um, in Beirut as well, just after Hariri's assassination in the same year. So the court has indicted five people in this case. So one of them is a senior military Hezbollah officer, uh, Mustafa Badreddin, who was killed in Syria a few years back, and he was uh, d- the court accepted the evidence for his death, so they dropped him out of the case for now. They had four other Hezbollah-linked conspirators uh, who are now uh, being indicted, being tried. And the original indictment happened in 2011 of these four people. And uh, when this happened, we had another political crisis with Hezbollah, FPM, and Amal ministers resigning from cabinet, toppling Hariri's uh, cabinet altogether and uh, stating, making a statement against the international tribunal saying we're, we're not going to uh, cooperate with this, Lebanon should not cooperate with it. It's a Zionist American conspiracy against the resistance. 
And this was few, five days actually before the indictment, but it was on the news that Hezbollah members would be indicted. Everyone knew it. So there, there was this big political backlash against it. But despite this political black backlash, Lebanon never actually abandoned the STL. It kept funding it even during the, the government of Mikati, which was a pro-Syrian and not part of the March 14 uh, political force. And uh, the main trial uh, happened and tri- started happening in 2014 with the prosecution office. Uh, the arguments of the prosecution office in the court is that the main conspirator, the, the person behind the implementation of the attack, assassination, is... Uh, Salim Ayash, who is part of the Hezbollah network, and three other people assist, assisted him in the implementation of the assassination. And these three other people were uh, Hassan Mirai, who had originally um, a different case, but it was then merged within the same argument, Hussein Unaisi and Asad Sabra. They are all supporters or linked to Hezbollah organizationally in one way or another. And the prosecution case uh, had nine counts in it. And the nine counts are uh, sitting on STL's website, and they include uh, committing a terrorist act, intentional homicide, and the use expl- of explosive devices. Um, but the details on are on STL's website. And and like with this, the the prosecution's case, it, it's been like very long and very detailed, right? It, several yeah. years of testimony, but but it it really hangs on a lot of uh, cell phone data. Yeah, uh, which, which is sort of like like if you've watched like the first uh, or if you listen to the first uh, season of Serial, the podcast, right? It, mm-hmm. It's sort of like that, but a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah, um, you can get into really the, the nitty gritty of the details, but basically they have all of this, this trove of of cell phone data and which towers uh, were used and. Uh, all these different cell phone networks, you know, like the red network of cell phones that only communicated with each other. And then, uh, you know, like the green network and uh, and what prosecutors have done have linked the they've linked these networks to the accused individuals, to the uh, mm-hmm. to the people on trial. And and everything sort of sort of rests on like that's sort of the crux of the case. There's other evidence as well. Uh, but really, this is sort of the, the linchpin of the prosecution's case. OK, so. This is very, very involved, and you can definitely like delve into the details. But I'm I'm more interested in the the, the politics of this, right? Yeah. Uh, and and specifically, you know, like we we said a few minutes ago that this is a very exceptional court. Um, so why why is the international community so interested in this case? I don't understand that. Yeah, I think I could understand it more um, in 2005 than now, but. Overall, it's the same. It's pressure on Hezbollah. It's leverage against Hezbollah and the Syrian regime. Right. Clearly, there's a political, like, international geostrategic. There, there's something behind this that that's more than just, like, we're angry about, you know, the, the deaths of 22 people, uh, one of them being a former prime minister. Yeah, I think the, the politics of it is not related to the actual investigation as much as it's related to this happening uh, rather than just not happening because it could have been happened completely differently like the Lebanese judicial authorities would investigate it and um, make their own verdict and everything like hap- like which is what happens everywhere else but continuing with this investigation and supporting Lebanon um, funding the STL etc uh, is I think because the political implications of the investigation itself would be massive right I mean Hezbollah as a political group being behind the assassination of Hariri and ha- and uh, people having evidence for that is really 
huge. Uh, I mean, I think the Lebanese people are in kind of a state of denial that Hezbollah is involved at all since the original indictment. People say, yeah, maybe this is because the STL is political, but maybe it was not really Hezbollah, it was the Syrian regime, etc. Everyone everyone accepts that the Syrian regime is behind it, almost everyone, uh, except uh, Hezbollah, which has argued that it's the Israelis who killed uh, Rafiq Hariri uh, because uh, based on some what they called evidence, which is that the Israelis were monitoring Hariri's movements. And Hezbollah actually uses the politicization aspect of the court as, a, as an argument to say it's not legitimate. You know, they say it's rigged. It's, a, you know, it's a, this Western uh, plot or whatever. And I mean, they have a point, right, that there, there are the politics involved but like they're also playing politics with this, right? Because if they, you know, if they are found guilty, it could be very bad for them. Yeah, exactly. So I think this is what Hezbollah is trying to do. They want to discredit and delegitimize the court as much as possible and link it to some Zionist American plot so that the moment the final verdict is out and um, Lebanon has to take uh, action concerning this verdict and also the international community, but specifically Lebanon, that if anyone tries to do that, especially Saad Hariri being uh, possibly probably the head of government for the next few years, then there are already a baggage of accusations against him taking this political action and this action. And it would be seen as Hariri succumbing to this international plot against Hezbollah, which would mean uh, rising tensions. And we have seen what happens when Hezbollah is cornered in the past. So Hezbollah said the court does not make sense and it's a plot, but it also provided evidence that the Israelis, as we mentioned, were behind the assassination. So, so Hezbollah acknowledged that no one has the truth behind who killed Hariri, but they present an argument before STL indicted its four members as a preemptive attack. So I think they will just keep doing that until the final verdict is out and then the political implications will happen. And like my sense of it is that internally within Lebanon, nothing's like, let's say that, that you know, there are four guilty verdicts on all counts or something, you know, like the, the prosecution just wins everything. My sense, though, is that inside Lebanon, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference because because of what you're talking about, like as well as like prepared the ground very well on on the one hand. And then on the other hand, like I feel like there's I, I feel like there's sort of a fatigue yeah, uh, amongst the population, like like Khalas, like we're this happened 13 years ago, and yes, it's terrible, but are you really gonna like bring everything up to the surface again? Totally, I think uh, as you're saying, locally is not where I see most of the implications. It's rather internationally because even if people don't believe STL, interna- the international community will probably take action against Hezbollah after uh, realizing that they, as a political organization, decide to assassinate the most important political figure in Lebanon back then, who is their political opponent. So they are a terrorist organization, period, which is still uh, contested by different people in the international community. Some people only outlaw the military faction of Hezbollah and other people consider even their political faction or political wing uh, terrorist organizations. So this would mean maybe more sanctions on Hezbollah, more restrictions on Lebanese people dealing with any members or people connected to Hezbollah at all. And we've already we've already seen this start to happen, right? Hanin Ghadar, who is a Lebanese journalist now mm-hmm. at, at, at WinUp in D.C., 
uh, she came out last week citing like the prosecution's arguments saying that like okay it's it's time like there's it, there's clear that it's clear that Hezbollah is involved here it's time you know for for us to treat uh, Hezbollah like a terrorist organization completely get rid of the the wings argument that the Europeans use for instance yeah Definitely. And we're talking about a Hezbollah that is rising in political power in Lebanon. So we can expect in the next four years when the final verdict is out and as Hezbollah remains in possession of a big political leverage in Lebanon, that there would be some big international political tensions happening around it. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's all we have for this week. Uh, Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.